Well, let me welcome you to this week's lesson on Love Divine. I'm, I'm excited to give you this lesson today, but I want to tell you something even more exciting, and that's that in January, we're going to be able to start meeting together live again. That means I'm going to get to speak to actually a live audience for the first time in a long time, and I am pumped about that. Um, I can't give a lot of details right now, but when January comes around and we start back up our second half of the book of John, uh, the elders have given us permission to begin to gather again here on the campus, and that's on all campuses, uh, west, south, here on uh, Fort Worth campus, and uh, both in the morning and the evening. So that's our plan. I'm going to be showing up live, and you're invited to come join me. There will be some... Uh, Conditions we have to meet in terms of uh, social distancing, but we're going to work out all those details. And so you'll be getting, getting an email pretty soon from me with more details about what that's going to look like. But uh, just know this, that if you're wanting to get back on campus, wanting to get back live with some other guys, we're going to be doing that starting in January. And again, on all three campuses, five times a week. And so um, you'll hear more in the days ahead. Well, this... Uh, this week, we're going to take a step further in our journey in love divine. We're taking a look at Jesus Christ as he's revealed to us in the Gospel of John. And last week, we looked at this issue that he sent from God. Uh, Mitchell addressed this last week. He covered most of chapter 7. I'm going to pick up where he left off and then take us into chapter 8. But the whole point of last week was really about that God was sent, uh, Jesus was sent by God. That's, that's the phrase that he used over and over again. Now, why is that important? Well, we know this. He says in chapter 7, verse 29, I know him, Jesus is speaking, I know God, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, again, why is that important? Remember, he's trying to reveal, not just to his 12 disciples, but to all those who followed him, and also to the religious leaders of Israel, that he is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Anointed One. He's the Lamb of God. He's, he's all those things we looked at week one, and he's trying to convey to these people that I have been sent by God, and with being sent by God, he brings with him power and authority from God. And so that didn't necessarily resonate real well with the religious leaders, as we know. And it's going to continue to cause them some angst and anxiety as we move forward. But it sets up what we're going to look at in this week's lesson, which is the Son revealing himself as light and truth. Now, we've heard the, the reference to light early on in week one, chapter one, because that's how John opens his gospel. But he's going to add to it this issue that Jesus Christ is truth. So he's light and truth. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 8, we're going to see that Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, once again, this is going to be a statement that causes a lot of anxiety and a lot of tension between he and the religious leaders in particular. It's going to cause continuing confusion with his 12 disciples and the other followers who are trying to understand who this man is and what has he come to do. But again, this week, we're looking at this idea that he is light and truth. Now, in chapter 7, verse 37, this is kind of where um, Mitchell had to drop off and, and leave some of this for me to cover. But it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Now, this is important because at that feast, there was a water rite, and Mitchell unpacked this last week, but there was this traditional water rite where water was brought from the Pool of Siloam, and it was taken into the temple, and it was poured out. And in the context of that occurrence, Jesus is saying of himself, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. A lot of stuff going on in those verses. But just to simplify it, Jesus is standing in the temple and he's declaring himself to be the water of life, the source of everything that they need. And he's tying himself to this water ritual, but he's also tying himself to something even far greater, as we'll see. He, he proclaims that if you're thirsty, come to me. Now, in their minds, thirst was met by God. Uh, they think of the wilderness when God had Moses strike the rock and water was provided for them. They think of the manna, how God provided bread for them. And, and so here's Jesus declaring himself to be the satisfaction for their thirst. Remember, he's been sent by God. He's the emissary of God. He's the son of God. And he's declaring himself to be able to meet their thirst. This reminds me of what happened in chapter four when he met that woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, that outcast, that adulterous Samaritan woman. And he says to her, if, it, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So all the way back in chapter four, Jesus has spoken about this, this idea of him being the source of living water. And here we see in chapter seven, he's tying it directly to the coming of the spirit, which has not yet happened. So he calls it the gift of God. And we know in Matthew chapter five, verse six, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, blessed are those, and that word can be translated happy, fulfilled, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, in that Sermon on the Mount, he's painting this picture of kingdom life that has not yet come. He's come to bring it. He's come to offer it. And he's speaking to that crowd of Jews, and he's telling them that you're truly blessed, you're truly fulfilled, you'll be truly happy when you have all your needs satisfied. By who? By him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So here we are in chapter 7 of John's gospel, and he's offering to anyone who thirsts satisfaction. How? Through him. Because he's been sent by God. Because he's the Son of God. Because he's the Lamb of God. Because he's the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. So in verse 39, it says, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So two times here, he re references the Spirit. John talks about the Spirit. He's on the other side of the cross. He's writing late in the first century, and he's revealing to his readers, who are believers, that what Jesus was referring to was the Spirit, the coming of the Spirit. Now, what's important for us to understand here is that as Jesus spoke, we already know that the people were having a difficult time understanding what he was saying. But oftentimes, here we are, this side of the cross, and we also have a hard time understanding 
what we read in Scripture, and even what we read coming out of the lips of Jesus himself, we fail to grasp the prophetic nature of what Jesus is saying. See, there's all kinds of things that Jesus says that tie all the way back to the Old Testament and the prophets and the words of Moses and David and others. And we don't make that link, and so we miss what's going on. We, we fail to see the true significance. Now, this statement about the pouring out of the Spirit and Jesus offering himself as the satisfier of all thirst ties all the way back to Joel, the book of Joel, a prophetic book in the Old Testament, particularly chapter 2. Now, listen to what it says, and I want you to hear it as best you can like a first century Jew. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is a prophetic passage. It's talking about and tying into the coming of the Messiah. It's God promising what will happen in that day. So as you can imagine, these people are hearing Jesus. They've heard rumors. They might even have suspicions of their own that he is this Messiah. And so they're kind of expecting these things to happen. The pouring out of the Spirit. Their sons and daughters prophesying. Old men having dreams. They don't have a clue what that means. They don't know exactly what it'll look like, but they're looking forward to it. Well, it goes on. It says, and God promises, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this particular part of Joel chapter 2 probably went over their heads much like it does ours. Now, we're living a long time after this was said or written, and yet we have just as much difficulty fully comprehending what's going on here. And this is one of those cases in, in Old Testament prophecy. It's the, the now, not yet aspect of prophecy. So many of the Old Testament prophecies were going to come true or happen in the future, the near future, and they did and they have, but some were to happen in the far distant future and have yet to take place. This is a case in point. This is yet to take place. Even as we live, this is yet to take place. It's speaking into the distant future. What's really interesting is if you back up a few verses earlier in chapter 2, here's what it says. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Remember, this is God speaking to the people of Israel. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people, the people of Israel, shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else. Now catch this. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Now, the people hearing Jesus speak, the people who are assuming or hearing rumors that he might be the Messiah would automatically think of these kinds of passages from the Old Testament. And they're longing for the day when they will never be put to shame again. See, for hundreds of years, they have been subjugated by outside forces like the Romans. And it, it began with the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and it continued to happen over the the centuries, and at this point in time, as Jesus is speaking to them, they are under the rule and the control and the power and the subjugation of the Romans. And they long for this day when they will never be put to shame. 
So as they're hearing Jesus speak, they're filtering it through all of these expectations. But they're having a difficult time understanding what he's saying. But when he says, come to me, anyone who is thirsty, they have a response. And they begin to say things like, is this the prophet? Is, is this the guy who's going to usher in all these promises of God? Some even say, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Remember, Christ is the Greek form of Messiah. So there's all kinds of things going on in this passage as the people hear him speak and as they wrestle with what he says and they're trying to connect the dots and they're having a difficult time. And it goes on in verse 33 and says, so there was a division among the people over him. Isn't it interesting how Jesus Christ, ever since he came, has always caused division. He's always caused conflict. There are those who believe, there are those who don't believe. And, and the same thing was true when he walked this earth. And so some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And that leads us into verse 45. Who, who do we know already has plans to arrest him and do something with him? Well, it's the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Essenes, the Sadducees. And it says, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him in? Now we know from earlier in this chapter that they had sent these officers to arrest Jesus and bring them to them. They already had plans to arrest him, put him out of action, and, and do something with him to get him out of their way because they were already sick and tired of this man named Jesus. But the officers didn't bring him. And it says the officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anything like this. We've never seen anybody like this. And so they did nothing. They didn't arrest him. They were afraid to arrest him. And it, it raises the ire of the Pharisees and the high priest and all these religious leaders who are so adamantly opposed to Jesus. Why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you arrest him? And these poor officers are just saying, we don't know. We, we've just, why would we arrest him? This guy's amazing. This guy is incredible. No one has ever said anything like this, man. We've never experienced anything like what we saw and witnessed. And, and in this passage, Nicodemus speaks up, the man who came and visited Jesus in chapter 3 under the cover of night. And he's a Pharisee, and he's there in this meeting, and he speaks up, and he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Shouldn't we give this guy a fair trial? Shouldn't we... See if what he's saying might be true. See, Nicodemus is curious. Nicodemus is not yet a believer, but he's enthralled with what he hears and what he sees about Jesus. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is a slap in the face. It's a dig at this, this esteemed Pharisee named Nicodemus. Are you from the hinterlands? Are you from the boondocks? Are you from the rural areas? Are you a hick like these fools? Don't you know that no prophet arises from Galilee? Nothing ever good comes out of Galilee. What's going on here? Well, we know from last week that Jesus has declared himself as having been sent by God. He's an emissary of God. He's not just an emissary. He's the son of God having been sent by God the Father on a mission. But here's what they didn't know. And here's what we often overlook about that mission. We sometimes think that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross for my sins and your sins and then was raised again the third day so that we might have eternal life. And that is true. 
But there is so much more to this mission than just that. Is that incredible? Yes. Is that something that we should revel in and rejoice in? You bet. But there's so much more to his mission because it also includes not just his crucifixion, which is key. It includes his resurrection, without which the crucifixion means nothing. It includes his ascension. In other words, he returned to the Father. He didn't stay here in his resurrected form. He went back to his Father, and because he did, he sent the Holy Spirit. It includes, at this moment, his intercession on our behalf. He represents us before the Father. It's going to include his second coming. See, all of these things are included in this idea of his incarnation, his having come to earth from heaven. He came, he died, he resurrected, he returned, he's interceding, and someday he's coming back. But here's the deal. All of those people that are listening to him, for the most part, are going to continue to reject him because they're stuck in the dark. They're blind to the truth. You remember John opened his gospel by saying that Jesus came into the world. He came into a world that was dark. He was the light. And, and yet, they didn't understand. They couldn't see him. They had no idea about any of these things. And what's interesting is neither did the disciples at this point. They didn't yet understand his crucifixion, resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his second coming. They didn't get it. And even as we move forward and he begins to reveal to them all the things that are going to happen, they wrestled with it, they struggled over it, and they could not yet process the full nature of his mission. So chapter 8 opens up and it just simply says, they each went to his house. It's like they dispersed. You know, Jesus leaves people dumbfounded at times. Everybody just kind of goes their own way. We're not told what happened in that little conclave of Pharisees and Sadducees. We know there was dissension. We don't know what happened to the officers that refused to, to arrest him. Did, did they get fired? We don't know. All we know is that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Typically, that's the place he went to just outside of Jerusalem, outside the walls of a Jer Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley on the east. And he would go to this, this area called the Mount of Olives where there was a garden. Perhaps he went there to pray. We don't know. It's not told in this passage. But it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And it says, all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught. Now, I've circled this word for a reason because it's going to set up a, another contrast between he and the Pharisees. Uh, it's going to reveal the, a contradiction between who these men, who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, how they live their lives and how they perform their function as priests of God and how Jesus lived out his life as the Son of God. It says he sat down and he taught. But the scribes, the, the experts in the Mosaic law, and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. I, I love the juxtaposition between the, the, the word taught and caught. And I know this is an English translation of some Greek words, but it, I just want you to understand that there is a contrast here between Jesus and these men. It says they caught this woman. And it reveals to me that Jesus, whose teaching is interested in enlightenment, and he's also interested in instruction. He's trying to help these people who are living in darkness understand truth. He's 
trying to expose them to who he is and what he's come to do and how they might be restored to a right relationship with God the Father. But the Pharisees are all about entrapment. That's what this passage is all about from really the last verse of chapter 7 to the 11th verse of chapter 8. They're trying to entrap Jesus and they're trying to condemn him because they want to get rid of him. What the officers failed to do, arrest him, they're now trying to do by setting him up. And they do it with this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Now it says they approach him and they go to the law. They, they address the Mosaic law and they say, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? What, what's your opinion? And they said this, according to John, that they might test him. See, they, they, they want to set him up. And this is not the first or the last time they will try this tactic. They weren't listening and wanting to hear legal advice from Jesus. They weren't wanting his interpretation of the law of Moses. They already had their own. What they were trying to do is get this guy in trouble because if he said stoner, the people would turn against him because they didn't like that particular law. And if, if he said, let her go, then they could say, well, then you're a heretic. Then you don't believe in the law of Moses. And they could set him up that way. It was a lose-lose proposition in their mind. They had him either way, but they were wrong. All they were interested in was trapping Jesus and tricking him to say something with which they could then accuse him and hopefully get rid of him. So what happens? We know from the story, and you're very familiar with the story, Jesus, we're told, knelt down, and he began to write in the dirt with his finger. We have no idea what he wrote. There's all kinds of speculation. If you want to have a fun time, go get a bunch of commentaries and just see what so many people try to figure out that he wrote in the sand. We have no idea, and we're not told by John, which leads me to believe that it's really not that important. But he writes in the sand. And then he stands back up and he makes a statement. Here's what he says. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he kneels back down and he begins to write again. So he makes this, this interesting statement and he's making it to the crowd, but he's addressing it to those men who brought this woman who had been caught in adultery because they're using her as a prop. They're using her as a tool. And he says, okay, which one of you has never sinned? And if, it's, if you're here, you have the right to throw the first stone. So what happens? It's going to reveal that nobody throws a stone. Why? Because Jesus is revealing how pervasive the darkness really is. See, these men are religious leaders. These men are the cream of the crop. These men are the elite, and the people look up to them. They're known for their righteousness. They're known for their flowing robes. They're no, known for their knowledge of the law and their understanding of God's word, the Hebrew scriptures. And yet Jesus is revealing that you live in darkness just like everyone around you, including this woman. There's no difference. See, he's exposing the truth. He's, he's exposing the reality of who these men really are. And Jesus could see into their hearts. He knew the true condition of their hearts. There's some who say that what Jesus was writing in the dirt was a list of their sins. And we know a little bit later in this passage, it says, and when they heard it, 
which is kind of an interesting thing because he's writing. Perhaps the people were looking over Jesus' shoulder and going, oh gosh, look at that one. And they read it. And it's a sin that one of these men had committed, maybe associated with his name, we don't know. And when they heard it, these men were convicted by it. Again, we don't know what he was writing, and it's really not important because all he's doing is he's, he's exposing the truth about man's sin problem. And everyone in that audience had the same problem. Ecclesiastes 7.20 tells us, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. They don't exist. They didn't exist in Jesus' day. They don't exist in our day. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's not saying righteous men sin. It's saying there's no man who's righteous because they all sin. And so these men are getting exposed for who they really are. Psalm 143, 2 says, no one living is righteous before you. Perhaps Jesus was writing these verses in the sand. Again, we don't know. But something about what he wrote was convicting. Something about what he wrote was revealing to them. And he says to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he writes again on the ground. And it says, when they heard it, somebody was reading what he was writing. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, which is a really interesting um, point of inf inference from John that the older men, the wiser men, the more revered men, the high priest and others, they were the first to exit the scene. Because nobody was without sin. So what happens? They all leave. I don't know if the whole crowd left or just the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders left, but it says, Jesus turns to the woman and he says, where are they? Where'd they go? Where are the ones who condemned you? Is there no one here to condemn you anymore? And what does the woman say? No one. She looks around and the men who arrested her, the men who grabbed her, who caught her in the act of adultery, which is a really interesting, how did they catch that? Unless they were looking for it. They've all left. See, is there anyone here to condemn you? No, because nobody has the right to condemn this woman of anything because they're just as guilty. And yet Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I. Which should remind us of something that Jesus said to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. He says to this Pharisee, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save women like that adulterous woman, the woman at the well, the men around that circle who thought they didn't need a physician because they didn't think they were sick, they needed Jesus, but they refused to accept him. See, he didn't come to condemn. The world was already condemned. Everyone is condemned. We know that all humanity from that point, really from the point of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden to this point, they're all living in darkness and believing the lies of the enemy. There is no God. There is no sin. There is no eternal damnation. There is no need for salvation. They're believing a lie, or they're believing the lie that I'm, I'm all right. I'm, I'm okay. I'm righteous. I do a lot of good things. I believe in God. But see, Jesus came to reveal the truth, and he wasn't going to condemn this woman. 
And then he goes on and he makes a statement that we're all very familiar with. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now notice these distinctions he gives. I am the light. No one will walk in darkness if they follow me. He's, he's setting up this juxtaposition between light and darkness. And it's what the whole gospel of John began with in chapter one. And if you follow me, if you believe in me, if you walk with me, you will be with the light of life. You will enjoy the light of life. You will have freedom, as he's about to say. And so the Pharisees are struggling with these words. So obviously, there are some Pharisees that are still hanging around, maybe on the edge of the crowd. They've kind of dispersed into the corners. They've left the limelight, and they've stand, they're standing now on the sides. They don't know what to do with this reference about the light. But again, it takes us back to chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light. He's come in to expose darkness. When you turn on a light in a dark room, it gets rid of the darkness. Darkness is nothing more than an absence of light. And so Jesus came into a dark world, darkened by sin, and he shined the light of his glory, the glory of God. We also know in 1 John chapter 1, written by John, that God is light, and in him no darkness, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the relationship that Jesus came to bring, a restored relationship with God the Father where we can walk with him in his presence and enjoying the light of his glory. Did they get that? Did the Pharisees understand that? No, the Pharisees turned to him and say, you're bearing witness about yourself. You're, you're, you're saying things about yourself that aren't true. And in their economy, in their understanding, no one could witness for themselves. It was impossible in the legal system they had. You couldn't self-testify. It had to be corroborated by somebody else. They say, your testimony is not true. We don't accept it. You're just, you're just speaking on your own. You're claiming things about yourself, and we don't accept it. And Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, even if I am speaking about myself, my testimony is true. Why is it true? Well, it takes us back to what we looked at last week. He says, I'm going where I came from, and where I'm going, you do not know. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand where I came from, and you don't understand where I'm going. See, he was sent from God to earth, and one day he's going to go back to God. But they didn't get that. They didn't understand that. And so they don't think what he says is true, but he says, yes, it is. Because everything I say, everything I do comes from God the Father. But see, they're basically saying you're a liar. You're crazy. You've got a demon. You've got problems. We need to get you out of the way. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm not a liar. You're judging me based on the wrong thing. You're only hearing what I'm saying, but you don't understand where those words come from. You don't understand where I come from. And you don't understand that one day I'm going back to where I came from. See, this all has to do with his authority, his power, his right to say and do the things that he says. 
And Jesus, in these verses, is claiming the veracity, the truthfulness of his authority. I am sent from God. I am going to return to God, and I have authority from God. See, it tells, tells us in verse 14 of chapter 8, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. I know I came, I know why I came, and I know one day I'm going back when I accomplish what I came to do. See, he's not declaring things about himself. He's declaring what the Father declares about him. He's doing the will of his Father. And he says, you don't know me because you don't know God. You don't understand him and you don't understand me. They're blind. They're living in darkness. They're believing a lie. And they don't believe that he was sent from God. And they don't believe he's going to return to God. And this is a huge stumbling block for these men. See, Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Why? Because I've been sent from God. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. There's that, that statement again that we looked at last week. He continues to claim that I am sent by God and I speak on behalf of God. And if I judge, I judge because I have authority from God. But once again, they don't understand. He says, in your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. You want two witnesses? I'll give you a second witness. How about God? How about Yahweh? God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Is that good enough for you? Well, it wasn't because they didn't accept it. They refused to believe that he was who he was. They refused to believe that he came from where he came from. They refused to believe that he was going back to the right, right hand of his father. See, they didn't know. They didn't understand because they're living in darkness. And they say, where is your father? And Jesus says, you know me neither nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. See, you don't know my father. You don't know Yahweh, even though you read the scriptures, even though you study them relentlessly and religiously, you don't know who sent me because you don't know me. You don't understand. See, Jesus is going to later tell his disciples, his 12 disciples, this news. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. Pharisee, Sadducee, high priest, doesn't matter. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, speaking to his disciples, and you have seen him. How? He is the glory of God revealed. He is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh. He has revealed God, the Father, to these men. And now he's telling you, you do know God because you know me. But see, this is not true of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They don't know Jesus. They refuse to accept Jesus, and they don't know God as a result. See, Jesus was the light of God shining in the darkness. He, he came to illuminate the darkness with the glory of his life. He's the truth of God exposing the lies of the enemy. Lies that these people had bought into and humanity has bought into ever since that first lie that, that the enemy whispered into the ear of Eve. Surely God has not said. See, Jesus came to do these two, thi two things, to be the light of God 
shining in the darkness, exposing sin for what it is and the need for a Savior and revealing the truth of God and exposing the lies of the enemy as just that, lies, half-truths, so that people might receive the real truth. And it says, these words he spoke in the treasuries, he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then he says, I'm going away. I love how Jesus just drops these truth bombs on, on the disciples and they're already struggling with everything else. And then he drops another one on, I'm going away and you will seek me. I'm leaving and you're going to seek me and you'll die in your sin. See, this is a, is a direct stab at the Pharisees, these men who thought themselves to be so religious. You're going to die in your sin. I'm leaving and you're going to die in your sin. You think you're righteous, but you're not. And then he goes on and he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You're going to die in your sin and you can't go where I'm going. Where did he say he was from? God. Where did he say he was going? Back to God. And he's basically telling them, you're going to die in your sin and you can't go to be with God. That's a powerful statement to these men who thought, saw themselves as righteous. And so the Jews said, is he going to kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? Is he going to take his own life? They, they, again, they, they don't understand what he's talking about. They don't grasp the significance of the words coming out of his mouth because they don't grasp the reality of who he is. Why did he say, where I'm going, you cannot come? And then Jesus again drops a truth bomb on them. He says, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He just keeps saying it over and over again. And he just, he, he, he lets them know the truth. See, sometimes we're afraid to tell people the truth. Sometimes we're afraid to tell a lost and dying world the truth about their condition and the future that awaits them. But Jesus wasn't afraid. Jesus wasn't scared to tell the truth. He came to reveal the truth. He was the truth. And he says, you're from below, I'm from above. See, there's this dichotomy that he presents, this contrast between he and these men, but not just those men, every man, every woman, every child living at that time and those living today who are outside of Christ. He says, you're from below, I'm from above. I'm from a different place. He says, you're from this world, I'm not of this world. I came to live in this world, but I'm going to vacate the premises and I'm going back to the Father. He, he tells them, you're going to die in your sins. I came to die for sinners. You see the, the contrast? And in John 8, 24, he says, unless you believe that I'm who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. And they would. And not only they would, but others in that crowd who heard the same words would. And other people since then have refused to believe and have died in their sins. And it's still the condition going on in the world today. And so all they know to say is, who are you? Who are you? And Jesus said, just as I have been telling you from the beginning. You want to know who I am? I've already told you. See, this, this is really the, the key question throughout the book of John. Who are you? Who is this man from Nazareth called Jesus? Is he a rabbi? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? We already saw that they're all divided over who he is, and so the Pharisees just said, who, who are you? See, Jesus was a lot of things. 
And we've already looked at these over the last nine weeks. He says of himself, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, I'm the word of God made flesh. He's the light of the world. He's the lamb of God, as John the Baptist said. He's the son of God. He's the bread from heaven. He is the Messiah. He's all of these things and more, and yet they refuse to believe. See, he's light shining in the darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of ignorance. He's the truth of God revealing the truth about himself, the truth about righteousness, the truth about sin, the truth about eternity. Unless you believe in him, you will die in your sins. He's telling them the truth, but they refuse to believe the truth. They refuse to come into the light. And all they can say is, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm exactly who I told you I was. And then he goes on and says, I have so much more I want to tell you. I have much to judge by my life, by my words, by, by my actions. But he says, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that what I have heard, I declare to you. I'm telling you the truth about who I am, about your condition, about the hope for the future for you and your descendants. It's going to be through me. No one comes to the Father but through me. Unless you believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. I'm telling you the truth. And then he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. This is a clear reference to his crucifixion. And it ties back to chapter 3. Again, speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, as, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus knew this story. Nicodemus knew it well. He just didn't know that it was a foreshadowing of the Messiah. In chapter 12, Jesus is going to issue this same statement again. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. See, at this point in chapter 8, Jesus is declaring to the crowds, but more specifically to his 12 disciples, that I'm going to be lifted up. I've got to die so that these things can be fulfilled. I'm telling you truth, but it will not be available as truth until I accomplish what I've been sent to do. And it says, as he was saying these things, many believed. Did they fully believe? No, because they didn't fully understand, but they were beginning to wrestle with these truths. And verse 31 says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you continue to remain in what I've told you, even though you're wrestling, just keep believing, you will be truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that just raised another bone of contention between he and these religious leaders who start arguing with him about what does it mean to be free. We're the offspring of Abraham. We're, we're the descendants of the patriarch. We're already free. Yes, we're under Roman rule, but we're free men because we belong to God, the family of God. And Jesus is saying, no, you've got to know the truth. It's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. It's not enough to be an Israelite. You've got to know the truth about who I am and about what I've come to do. See, the truth Jesus is letting them know is going to bring freedom. Freedom from what? Well, freedom to know the true identity of Jesus. And he's telling them, and he's helping them, hoping that they will believe he is who he claims to be. 
It's also the freedom to understand the depth of their depravity. See, everything Jesus is telling them is helping them or trying to get them to understand just how depraved they really are. He who's without sin cast the first stone. Nobody picked up a stone. They all walked away. He's trying to help them see freedom from their enslavement to sin. And that's what Christ is still trying to do with countless millions. He's trying to bring them freedom to discover the true source of their righteousness. It's not through you, it's through Him. You can't earn your own righteousness. You can't be a righteous man. As we saw earlier, there is no one righteous. There's no one who doesn't sin. It's only available through Him. And so they begin to argue about what He's saying. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, this this is such a significant statement on the part of Jesus because he's letting them know that I am the source. I am the source of righteousness. I am the source of spiritual sustenance. I am the source of freedom. And yet, you seek to kill me. It's almost that, that it reminds me of the statement, they're trying to kill the golden goose. They're trying to kill the very one who could bring them everything they long for. They're trying to kill the Messiah. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. My words don't resonate with you. My words don't take root in you because you refuse to believe. And then he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do not, and you do what you have, you do what you have heard from your father. And he's going to go on in the next verses and he's going to compare them to children of Satan. See, you're not a a child of Abraham. You're not a child of God. You're really a child of Satan and you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. See, these men love the darkness more than they love the light. We know that from John chapter 3, verse 19. They preferred lies to the truth, John 8, 44. They practiced sin rather than righteousness. That's why they couldn't, pick up a stone and condemn this woman because they were just as guilty of sin. John 8, 34. They were worldly rather than godly. Even though they were revered for their godliness, they really weren't in God's economy. And Jesus exposed them for what they truly were. They were deserving of death and not life. You will die in your sins. And they were slaves and not sons. Who are you to say we're not free? We're descendants of Abraham. No, you're a slave. You're a slave to sin, and you're enslaved to death. And unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. So what do we do with this? One of the things I I want you to understand is, is I purposely am not giving you a lot of Monday morning applications. Here's what I believe. My job is not to give you applications. My job is not to give you a list of things to do. My job is to hopefully help you see the truth of God's Word, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to make application. Because every one of you is in a different place. Every one of you is in a different struggle with your faith with God, your belief in Jesus Christ. There's a different point of application of which I'm not capable of understanding. So rather than do that, I want you to wrestle with these questions. In declaring himself to be the light of the world, Jesus was offering himself as the solution to a life lived in the darkness. What was it about this claim that so aggravated these Jewish religious leaders? Why did they so vehemently 
respond to his claim that you live in the dark. You're blind. You're helpless. You're hopeless. And see, sometimes you and I struggle with hearing that same thing because we want to think better of ourselves than we really should. Secondly, in what ways has Jesus illuminated the dark recesses of your life and exposed what has been hidden? Why do we tend to find this process so uncomfortable and we avoid it like the plague? One of the reasons many of us refuse to read the Word of God is because we find the Word of God convicting. And so we just stay away from it. And yet, it's the very way He shows us the truth about ourselves and the truth about Himself. Finally, what are some ways, what are some of the lies we believe that contradict the truth about Jesus, sin, righteousness, and God? See, the lies are still out there. The enemy's still spouting them. He's still spewing lies about anything and everything, trying to get us from believing the truth. What are some of those lies that you find yourself believing and that can be so detrimental to your walk with Christ? Well, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that his mission is not yet complete, that he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he returned on high, but someday he's coming back and we look forward to that day. I look forward to it more now than ever. And Father, as, as we wrestle with these questions, would you open our eyes to see the truth? Would you shine your light into the recesses of our hearts so that we can see the truth about who we are and how much more we need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God? Father, we love you and we thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll see you guys next week.